Section 6 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bosom of Mary, Part 3. His chief and sovereign occupation was in adoring God as the author both of nature and of grace. His infused science, in union with his incomparable holiness, rendered his worship of God quite a distinct service from ours, though it is both the cause and the example and the merit of ours. It was a pouring out before God of multiplied infinities of worship. He saw in their entireness the immeasurable claims of God's glory, and he sent forth continuous streams of worship to all points at once. He saw reasons we can never see for adoring God, and he saw them also transcendentally and eminently, and in a certain most true sense he satisfied all of them to the full. He covered and covered at once massively and beautifully, every perfection of the divine majesty, with the pure gold of his oblation. This was his incessant occupation. All other occupations, centred in this, resolved themselves into this, identified themselves with this. It is the single occupation of which the rest are manifold developments. Hence also, as we shall see hereafter, he occupied himself with rejoicing in his created nature, and not least of all because, by its seeing God clearly, it possessed such an idea of worship which the hypostatic union gave him the capabilities of satisfying. Incessantly also was he sanctifying Mary with the most marvellous operations of unitive love. She was penetrated as with innumerable arrows by the constant, keen, effulgent irradiations of his grace. Her whole being was saturated with his. She was transformed into his image as no saint has ever been. It is impossible for us to imagine how he was occupied with her, or how her finite nature and limited capacities gave him so much to do. The variety of her graces, as well as their eminence, is beyond our comprehension. Nevertheless, he had been using his wisdom, his power, his providence, his mercy and his love, upon this single planet of ours, perhaps for millions and millions of cycles of ages, advancing and developing his idea, like some sublime workman, without changing or modifying, even while he was variegating his original and irreformable conception. So it was with the cosmogony of grace in Mary. She had her epochs and her generations and her developments, in the long life of her sanctification, longer than it can be counted by mere days and months, only that in her nothing passed away, no graces became extinct, they grew in size, and they multiplied in virtue. New species were created in her constantly, but the old ones did not die away, either before the face of the new ones, or to make room for them. She was a world, in which he occupied himself perpetually, and if his paradise was so beautiful to begin with, that it drew him down from the Father's bosom, what must have been his love of us which drew him out of it nine months afterwards, when by his own handiwork it had become so unspeakably more beautiful? The government of the world was another of his occupations in the bosom of Mary. Worlds far off in the starry distances presented him with innumerable occasions every hour for his far-reaching providence. The countless meteors that flashed through space were guided by him, the ripening of invisible worlds, or worlds which from Nazareth seemed but like a needle's point of unsteady light, and which perhaps were one day to be the abode of rational creatures, was presided over by him, and none of its minutest details was without him. His influence was felt in incessant vibrations all through the vast realms of space, while he lay hidden in his obscure planetary residence in the bosom of Mary. 
In that same recess, mighty effluxes of glory went forth from him, like the outpouring of an ocean, through ample straits, into the wide realm of angels. He managed with minutest management the health and sickness, the joy and sorrow, the fountains of thought and the energies of action, of all the dwellers upon earth, who little deemed that their centre and their cause was in the bosom of a little Hebrew maiden. He was already occupied in that created home with our concerns of this far distant age, he saw us in the light of his redeeming love, and apportioned to us that superabundant share of graces which we all feel that we have received, graces more than sufficient many times over to have secured our salvation. Already in that hiding place he was saving souls. Already did men feel in temptation stronger helps of grace than they had felt before. Already was there a light round deathbeds which there had seldom been in the elder times. Already did something like day begin to dawn on those who lay in honest questioning darkness. In the bosom of Mary also he entered upon his office of judge. We know that he judges us not as God, but as man. It is one of the grandest prerogatives of his sacred humanity. The grounds seem most insufficient for supposing that he delayed the exercise of this power until after the resurrection. We believe, therefore, that the first soul that left its body after the moment of the Incarnation and thenceforth all departing souls, were solemnly judged by him in his created nature, and that for nine long months he held his solemn assize in Mary's bosom. Heaven also, and hell, and purgatory, and limbus, felt him as he waved his sceptre beyond the curtain, pavilioned, true monarch of the Orient as he was, in the fragrant inner chamber of his mother's life. There are flowers which give out their perfume in the shade, and grow more sweet as the sun mounts higher in the sky. They lie hidden under cool beds of rank green herbage, beneath the shadow of mighty trees, and yet when the warm air of the noon has heated the unsunny forest, these blossoms fill the foliaged aisles with their prevailing incense. Their odour gives a poetry and a character to the woodland scene, and by that odour the spot lives in our memory afterwards. Such is the sweet fragrance of St. Joseph in the church, stealing upon us unawares, perpetually increasing, and especially filling with itself all the shades of Nazareth, Bethlehem, and Egypt, but not reaching to the bare exposed heights of Calvary. Throughout the sacred infancy, St. Joseph is the odorous undergrowth of all its mysteries. We cause the perfume of his blossoms to rise up as we stir among them, and while we seem to be heeding it but little, because the mother and the child are so visible and beautiful, Nevertheless, we should miss it, and stay our steps, and wonder, if it were to cease. Who can doubt but that his dear and chosen foster-father was another of our Lord's occupations in Mary's bosom? Of all sanctities in the church, St. Joseph's is that which lies deepest down, and is the hardest to see distinctly. We feel how immense it must have been, the honour of Jesus and the office of St. Joseph towards his mother and himself, all point to an unusual effusion of graces upon him, while the lights which transpire as it were through chinks in the gospel indicate a most divine and at the same time a most deeply hidden life. At times we seem to see renewed in him the character of one of the old patriarchs, especially Abraham, when in his simple tent life amidst the pastoral solitudes of Mesopotamia, or we are reminded of the first Joseph, like the second Joseph by contrast, on the margin of the Nile, then again there are glimpses which betoken the fashion of New Testament sanctity, which make us hesitate in taking the view, in many respects so fitting, that in him the Old Testament holiness reached its highest and most beautiful development, 
and so touched Jesus and abode in the circle of the Incarnation as representing that more ancient sanctity. At any rate, most marvellously must our Lord have enveloped St. Joseph with light and love and wrought diligently in his soul with operations of the most astonishing and consummate grace. If magnificence is the inseparable accompaniment of all the divine perfections, there are none which it accompanies in a more special, though at the same time a hidden manner, than the attribute of justice, and it was peculiarly from God's justice that the exuberance of St. Joseph's graces proceeded. Who does not know the beautiful munificence of gratitude even among the sons of men? What then must gratitude be like in God? The sanctification of St. Joseph, the eminence of his interior beauty, must represent it. Our Lord, as it were, put himself under obligations to St. Joseph, as well as in subordination to him. His fair and spotless soul was the cloister built round Mary's innocence. In his paternal fostering arms the child was laid, who had no father but the Eternal. On Mary's score and on his own, how much had Jesus condescended to owe to Joseph? His payment was in holiness. When, therefore, we think of the offices for which he was paid, and who it was that paid him, must we not confess that Joseph also was a world by himself in the vast resplendent creation of grace, whose beautiful light and fair shining in its huge orbit we perceive with exultation, while it is hidden from us in its details by the immensity of its distance, and also by the strangeness of its phenomena, which will not altogether keep to our more limited analogies. On him truly the word in Mary's bosom spent much labour in God's sense of labour, with jubilee of love and exultation in the glorious perfection and variety of his loving work. The peerless jewel of redeeming grace, that highest point to which redeeming love ever attached, the immaculate conception, had been effected by him when he dwelt only in the Father's bosom. In it he laid the foundation stone of his created home, being himself external to it, for it was yet unbuilt. Since he had taken up his abode in Mary's bosom, his work on her had rather been the continuing and perfecting of that adornment of her in which we have already seen the Holy Trinity especially engaged. In the soul of St. Joseph also, his work had been eminently one of sanctification, though of course sanctification through redeeming grace. But now, rejoicing like a giant to run his course, he will signalize his advent by a work of sheer redeeming grace, which should be second to none but the Immaculate Conception, unless indeed the same unrevealed privilege had been accorded to St. Joseph. Hidden upon earth in his mother's bosom, like himself, there is an unborn child, somewhat older, indeed six months older than himself, who is eternal. This child has been from everlasting, elected to mighty things. He has been chosen to be our Lord's precursor. He is the old world's second Elias, a burning as well as a shining light. His destiny is so great that hitherto no man born of woman has had a greater, and in some sense, therefore, was it greater than St. Joseph's. St. Joseph, perhaps, was more deeply embedded in the divine light. God pressed him more closely to himself, as a mother almost hides her child in her bosom by the closeness of her embrace, while the Baptist was more held forth at arm's length to men, that they might see his light, and his light shine free and full upon them. This child also is one of the world's primal ideas, and one of his most beautiful elections, part of the gorgeous circle or hierarchy of the Incarnation. But at the present moment he lies in darkness. 
The stain of original sin is on that soul so capable of such a mighty indwelling of divine light. He is in the power of the evil one. God's great enemy has a kind of dominion in him, and by the common laws of things he must be born before he will be capable of any merciful ordinance by which his fetters can be broken, and he can be free to fly and nestle in the bosom of his Creator. The time of reason God in his compassion will anticipate for the children of all those who are in covenant with him. But the time of birth he has never yet anticipated for any one included in the decree of sin, unless it was for the prophet Jeremiah and for St. Joseph. By a wonderful untimeliness of mercy, the unborn Jesus will now go and redeem the Baptist gloriously, while he too is yet unborn. The unincarnate Saviour redeemed millions before his actual incarnation, his mother singularly above the rest. The incarnate but unborn Saviour too shall redeem millions in those nine months, the unborn Baptist singularly above the rest. Like a new pulse of impetuous gladness, the babe in Mary's bosom drives her forth with swift step, as if the precipitate gracefulness of her walk were the outward sign of her inward joy, and she was beating time with her body to the music that was so jubilant within. The mother traverses the hills of Judah, while Joseph follows her in an amazement of revering love. Like Jesus walking swiftly to his passion, as if Calvary were drawing him like a magnet, so the staid and modest virgin sped onward to the dwelling of Elizabeth in Hebron. The everlasting word within trembled in the tone of Mary's voice, and the babe heard it and leapt in his mother's womb, and the chains of original sin fell off from him, and he was justified by redeeming grace, and the full use of his majestic reason was given to him, and he made acts of adoring love, such as never patriarch or prophet yet has made." and he was instantaneously raised to a dazzling height of sanctity, which is a memorial and a wonder in heaven to this day, and the inspiration of the Holy Ghost thrilled through his mother at the moment, and she was filled full of God, and her first act in consequence of this plenitude of God was a worshipful recognition of the grandeur of the mother of God, and all these miracles were accomplished before yet the accents of Mary's voice had died away upon the air, Straight away the word arose within his mother's bosom, and enthroned himself upon her sinless heart, and borrowing her voice, which had already been to him the instrument of his power, the sacrament of John's redemption, he sang the unfathomable Magnificat, out of whose depths music has gone on streaming upon the enchanted earth all ages since. But what must a life of nine whole months have been, when such occupations as these were but a moment's miracle? Almost always we may be sure that what we see of God is less grand than what we do not see. He shows us what we can bear, and strengthens us to see much which our weak nature could never bear, and yet, after all, it is little better than the surface of his brightness, the back of his glory, as Moses calls it, which we see. Even the grandeur which we see, we do not see in its real greatness, its absolute and essential gloriousness, Yet how wonderful are these few samples of the occupations of the nine months, which we have been allowed to see. If these are few and superficial, and not in their true depth comprehended by us, what must have been the works of that active and contemplative life, so full of reality, energy, substance, and accomplishment, as we have already seen it to be? What must they have been in multitude, since these were momentary? What in grandeur, since these lie within our reach? What in unknown wonders, of whose existence we cannot dream, because they are so far down in God? 
It comes before us, sometimes in confused sublimity at prayer. Our eyes are turned upward, like the eagles in its flight. Yet we feel that we are wheeling, nay almost resting, over an abyss of unfathomable divine depth below, having seemed to cross the edge from the firm land of faith in our fervour, and unconsciously to intrude upon the happier land of sight. But it is one of faith's gifts, and not its least, to find repose, security, and the sense of home precisely in the dark, vacant magnificence of the mysteries of God. Let us turn from this life in Mary's bosom to her own contemporary life. It is too full of God and of divine significances, very needful to be contemplated, if we would rightly understand the life of the word within her. All the wide kingdoms of God's creation are fair to look upon. There is not a single province of it which is not so beautiful as to fascinate the mind and heart of man. It is no wonder men fall into such an idolatry of science, even departments of science which concern themselves with the details of but one section of creation rather than a kingdom of it, can readily so absorb the faculties of a large mind as to make it almost dead to other truth, blind to other beauty and incapable of other interests. The animal propensities of men must be strong indeed to keep down intellectual idolatry even to the pitch which it has attained in the present age, when the alluring charms of science with its broad regions of exhilarating discovery, are taken into consideration. Surely nothing but the better enchantment of God, the nobler spells of spiritual wisdom, the emancipating captivity of divine faith, can withstand the attractions of scientific research, more especially in the case of the physical sciences, where God's actual works are more immediately the objects of our investigation and not, as in the case of mental and moral sciences, the systems in which other men have embodied their puny views of what God has done. The contact with God is less immediate in these latter sciences, and the very phenomena have an uncertainty about them. The recesses in which physical science works are more authentic divine laboratories, where man's meddling has less overlaid God's footprints, and the disturbing force of moral evil is less perceptible. But if the physical sciences are, in our present imperfect state, more attractive to most men than the mental sciences, they, in their turn, must yield in interest and beauty to the sciences which are divine. Theology is the proper interpretation of all sciences. It is the central science in which alone all sciences are true, and all sciences one. The objects of faith, while they are more certain than any phenomena, are also unspeakably more beautiful, because they are divine and more interesting because we each of us have an individual interest in them, and they concern our eternity as well as our time. Theology has some departments which more resemble the physical sciences, such as the treatises on God, the Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, and Beatitude. Others again are more akin to the mental sciences, as the treatises on grace, on human actions, and on laws, while the treatises on the sacraments unite and often, in a perplexing way, the characteristics of both. But of all the kingdoms of God's creation, there are none, the paradise of the sacred humanity accepted, to compare with the interior of Mary's soul, the inward beauty, the marvellous wisdom, the consummate graces of that chosen queenly creature. We must try to bring before ourselves some picture of her life during those nine months, from the Annunciation to the Nativity, she bore the incarnate God within herself. She had an unclouded consciousness of her rank in creation. 
She possessed such a degree of infused science as enabled her more nearly to comprehend the vast mystery within her than the most piercing intelligence in all the realm of angels. She stood already upon a height of sanctity which no definitions can at all adequately express, so that there was a sense in which God found her worthy of the sublimity of her exaltation. Like a material world being fashioned and completed, so was she a spiritual world, grander and broader than all material creation, being fashioned by her Creator, and she was conscious of the unutterable process and adoringly passive under it, with the most meritorious of all possible consents. She was placed even in a kind of created superiority over him, because she possessed the rights of a mother, and his physical life was dependent upon her, and his possession of his soul had hung for a moment on her consent. Now, can we at all put ourselves in the position of such a creature? Can we divine how she would feel and act, how she would love and hope and believe and worship? There must be guesses in all sciences. We advance by guessing as often as by discovery. All that is needful is that our guesses should be in harmony with the indubitable and authentic analogies of our science. We must suppose, then, that short of the beatific vision and also of the joys of the Sacred Heart, no creature ever had a joy equal to the delight of Mary in possessing the incarnate God within herself, compassing the incomprehensible, exercising dominion over the omnipotent, and being united with Him who is infinite beatitude, in such a union that His life and hers were one. Is it even clear that the beatific vision is equal to this joy simply in the greatness of the joy? From some points of view we should consider Mary's bliss in this respect to be greater than many degrees of the beatific vision, and still more, if, as some revelations of the saints would seem to intimate, she did transiently, and from time to time, during those nine months, enjoy the beatific vision also. But, in kind at least, this joy of hers stands alone. None other is like it. It is single in creation. It is obviously a quite different joy from the beatific vision, because it is quite a different possession of God. It is, as it were, the other side of our Lord's joy in His sacred heart, which arose from the sense of His being the Creator, and yet being in such a wondrous and singular union with a created nature, while the joy of Mary resided mainly in the sense of her being a creature, and yet in such solitary and peculiar relations to the Creator. It could not help but be an exceeding joy, and yet it could not help also but be the masterful unity of her whole life. It must not only have coloured everything else, but everything else must simply have subsided into it. It must have made every other component part of life different because of its sovereign presence. Yet Mary knew that it was only for a season. She was conscious that the mystery must pass on into another and that his present state must give place to a new state. Moreover, our Lord's mysteries did not merely change, they rose as well as changed, they developed, they grew in beauty and had a multiplied significance. Thus her first sight of his newborn face at Bethlehem was a kind of beatific vision for her to look forward to, something for her still to desire, something which seemed to leave her present joy incomplete as well as transitory. Yet the enjoyment of God, however transitory, is in another sense never complete. Thus her bliss was like that of the blessed in heaven, insofar as it united in itself satiety and desire, the most complete enjoyment and yet a sweet insatiable hungering for more, which last, in her case, was a certain expectation. 
She had satiety, for how could she be other than satisfied when she possessed God within her bosom, and possessed him in such a singular way, and with such a transcending reality? He surely filled her nature, vast as its capacities were, to overflowing. Every pulse that beat in her reposed upon him in a way in which no creature out of heaven reposed on him before. Yet her very satiety fed her intense desire. She yearned for more without being the less satisfied with what she now enjoyed. A tranquil disquietude, a hungry contentment, a restful craving, these are the contradictory expressions by which we express to ourselves our own idea of her state. To use the word of the church, it was a state of expectation, that beautiful and touching mystery in honour of which she keeps a special festival, whereby she helps her children to clothe themselves with some portion of the grandeur of the mother's mind as fitting preparation for celebrating the son's nativity. In order to understand Mary's expectation, we must bring before ourselves a picture of her mind, one falling far below the original in brightness of colouring and in fullness of representation, yet such a picture as we can make for ourselves. No creature out of heaven, save the soul of the babe within her, ever saw the divinity so clearly as she, and she saw it, as none else can see it, substantially in herself, and physically compassed there. What must that be, which shall waken further expectations, when she is brooding over such a sea of glorious light and speechless calm as that? Moreover, no doctor of the church, not even the apostles comprehended the scheme of redemption with all its complicated graces, its magnificent disclosures of the divine perfections, its marvellous compensations, its abundant triumphs, the delicate machinery of its supernatural operations, more truly or completely than she did. She took in at a glance its colossal proportions as a whole, while she read off the ever-varying expressions of each lineament of that mystery, which may be defined as the full face of God turned towards creation. The past history of the world, with all its needs of a saviour, lay before her, with a divine light interpreting the entangled puzzles which human actions have printed upon it, and showing how tranquilly God's glory is unravelling it all into the orderly and ornate unity in which it originally lay in the intention of the Creator. The grand depths of Scripture were giving out to her perpetually a magnificent wisdom, as if the inner folds of the divine mind were being unrolled before her. The schools of Athens would have been rich indeed, if they had been endowed with one scintillation of the wisdom which out of the Hebrew oracles was falling evermore in showers of light upon her. The thirty-three years lay before her, as a painted country with its provinces lies before us in a map, and as she gazed upon the crowded vision, every faculty of her soul was heroically clothed with the spirit of sacrifice and the enthusiasm of magnanimity. Shadows fell upon her soul out of the cloudless skies of that vision, and her divine life deepened as ever and anon they passed upon her. They who have spent their boyhood among the mountains may remember the sacred awe which passed upon them as they lay upon the lonely heights when under the blue and cloudless heavens a strange shadow fell over them, and rested vibratingly upon them, and yet they knew themselves to be alone upon the mountain-top, and at last they perceived that it was some huge falcon or eagle in the sunny air, balancing itself high up betwixt the sun and them, and gazing down upon them, a shadow not wholly free from fear. 
Thus it was with our ladies' dollars in the vision of the three and thirty years. They cast shadows when there were no clouds, as if, like birds of prey, they had been allowed to sail through the unbroken brightness of that heavenly mystery. She also saw before her, in true perspective, the future of the church, its trials and its triumphs, and her own vast influence in every age upon doctrine, devotion, and the outward fortunes of the Holy See. With its millions of figures bearing their own blazonings with the sun full upon them, it passed like a gorgeous procession before her, wonderfully interpreted, as it passed in the amazing soliloquies of her own supernatural philosophy. She saw the battling forms of darkness and of blood, in which the church shall close her terrestrial pilgrimage, ever fighting her way to her eternal home, and engaged in the most dire of all her conflicts on the very confines of the promised land, and on the very eve of the final doom. She looked on through the mists of time, and all was clear to her. She saw the great world rocking almost off its equilibrium, not with material catastrophes, for in matter all was lawful, meek, and uniform, but with moral convulsions and mental revolutions. She saw it plunging on through space, so unsteady that it seemed ever about to fling the church off from itself, as a beast shakes off an uneasy load, or to swerve desolately from its spiritual orbit, so that, in some generations, good men, that is, God's men, should almost hold their breath in the terrible suspense of some inevitable and yet incredible finality. She saw it cleave through ages without precedent, through civilizations without parallel. She saw how its life of ponderous revolutions was one of lightning-like progress also, and there was a recklessness about its moral speed, and a daring in the manner with which it entangled itself in all manner of social complications, which might have depressed a seer less grand than she was. But no panic passed on her, the babe within her was stronger than the world. His tiny infant hand, his thin treble voice, were enough to confine it in its grove, and to speak peace to those warring elements of mind and will which sin has thrown into ruinous combustion. Then at last she saw the great wandering creation housed in its father's mansion, and bathed in the splendours of his eternal love, through the precious blood made from hers, and whose pulses she felt with unspeakable thrills throbbing within her at that moment. To what emotions of thanksgiving, to what hymns of praise, to what sciences in her soul, which were worships also, to what numberless unlanguaged and unsung magnificats, did not all this give rise. And yet she was expecting something more. End of section 6